We're going to continue our summer vacation series this morning. This morning, it takes us to Athens. Athens, a beautiful city that's filled with history, including the story we find this morning in Acts chapter 17. That's how we're going to get to Athens this morning. We're visiting Athens through the Spirit-inspired Word of God this morning. But as we visit Athens today, maybe someone in this room, maybe someone watching, joining us online, maybe you've had the opportunity to visit Athens in person. And if that's the case, then you know it isn't easy to get to Athens. I mean, it's not as hard as it was a couple hundred years ago, or even today, it's not as hard as it was a year ago, thankfully. But you can't just get on a plane in Louisville and fly nonstop to Athens. You have to make a stop or two along the way. There's going to be a layover. It's probably not going to be a long one, but you're going to have a period of time where you are waiting between legs of your journey in the airport, whether it's in New York or Chicago or Philadelphia. Probably not a long one, as I said, but there will be a layover. And there are a couple ways when you've got a layover in an airport that you can approach that time. Say you've got three hours in the airport in Chicago. You can either view those three hours as part of the journey, as part of how you're getting to where you're going. So you get something to eat, you move around, you get yourself physically, mentally, emotionally prepared to be on a plane for however long that is, right? If we were going to Athens, it would be like nine hours, a nine-hour flight. So you would need to get yourself prepared for that. Or you can view those three hours as an obstacle to your journey, as just a time for you just to sit there and to wait impatiently and to nervously check the status of your next flight to, to fret about how things are going to go. As we come together this morning, I think the reality is that we find ourselves with a similar decision before us. This Sunday morning is different than the 18 years of Sundays that have come before this one. And I say that not to belabor, to belabor the point this morning, but just to acknowledge the reality that we find ourselves as a church family in a period of transition in leadership, a layover, if you will. And more broadly, if you are in Christ this morning, then you're on a layover. Because by God's grace, we aren't where we started, but we aren't where we're going either. You might remember the words of Jesus in John 14, where he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? We'll be visiting that place that Jesus is preparing for us next Sunday as this series winds down. But this morning, I believe the Lord wants to help us answer some questions pertaining to our layover. Questions like, how are we going to approach the months ahead of us and the years ahead of us, Lord willing? Will it be with inaction and impatience or with purpose and prayer? Does a time of waiting mean it's time for us just to kind of wander around aimlessly or time for us to work intentionally. As we travel together to Athens in Acts 17, we find Paul on a bit of a layover of his own. In the course of his ministry and his missionary work, Paul had just left Berea and he had made his way to Athens. And there he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him before they would continue their journey on to Corinth. Paul was on a layover in Athens, and there we find Paul in that layover doing what the Spirit invites us to do this morning in our lives, not to wait passively, but to actively engage the culture around us. And so Paul shows us what it means for us to live on mission. Let's look together at Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We see Paul not being disengaged or apathetic, but active and engaged. And he shows us what it means for us to engage the culture around us in a way that points people to Christ. First, we see, we learn from Paul, four things we learn from him. And the first one is this, engaging the culture means faithful presence. Faithful presence. Let's be honest, some of us are prone to complicating things that are actually pretty simple. I'm guilty of that at times, worrying myself and others until someone finally comes from a different perspective and says, well, why don't we just do this? It's like, oh, well, yeah, that was obvious. Why didn't we just do that? And when we think about the mission of the church and then we look at the culture in which we live and we see the speed of change on some things or the slowness of change on other things, it can be overwhelming. If the culture in which we live is like the current of a, of a river, say the Ohio River, the call to engage the culture for Christ, it can feel like we're being called to step out into the river, into the flow of the current single-handedly and to try to stand up against that current. And rightly so, that can be overwhelming and fearful in a way that leads us to say, no, I'm not going to step out into that fray at all. I'm going to kind of just stay here where I am. I'm just going to sit back. I don't know what to do or I don't know how to do it. So I'll just do nothing. Just bide our time until maybe somebody else will come and do something. Or maybe for us until a next pastor comes, or maybe we're just waiting until Jesus comes back and he'll make everything right. But when we find ourselves waiting, Paul shows us that waiting doesn't have to mean that we're just waiting. In Athens, Paul was waiting, but that wasn't all he was doing. He wasn't just there. He shows us the difference between presence and faithful presence because he was also, we find, watching. As his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols, we see him beginning then to work. The question for us is, as we observe the culture around us, what is it that provokes our spirits? Or does anything provoke your spirit. Paul was provoked when he saw the city was filled with idols. He waited, he watched, and then he got to work, but not with some flashy program or complicated campaign. He just showed up in the synagogue and then in the marketplace day after day after day. And whoever happened to be there, he reasoned with them. He talked, he listened, he conversed, even with the philosophers of the day and not just with those on one side, but with those on both sides of the philosophical divides, the Epicureans and the Stoics, Paul recognized in Athens what we need to recognize today, that everyone is worshiping something. There's something that's highest in our affections, in our devotion. It might be for some people pleasure or power or self, or it could be someone else that we place as that 
object of our worship. But like the Athenians in a city filled with temples and altars, everyone is worshiping. And so the question is what or who we're worshiping. And that's a point where Paul wasn't afraid to engage. In his waiting, we see he watched and then he patiently worked to engage and persuade those around him, constantly preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Like we will today, Paul found some who were purely dismissive of him and his message. They said, what does this babbler wish to say? They didn't take him seriously. Others viewed his message as distant and foreign. They said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. In other words, they weren't sure that this message actually applied to them and had any impact on their lives. But nevertheless, they were intrigued, partially because hearing new ideas, we're told, was kind of their thing. And so they invite him to come and to share more. They wanted to understand what he was sharing, even if it was just for their own curiosity. And so in verse 16, we find Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up in Athens. But by verse 19, we find he's been invited to speak before the Areopagus, this body of philosophers, this established seat of religious and moral authority in Athens. How did he get there from point A to point B? wasn't a complicated plan. It was just the simplicity of faithful presence. And that's where engaging the culture always begins with those of us who know Jesus watching for the needs around us and then working for the good of those around us. Paul just showed up every day and talked about Jesus. He knew the scriptures, but he also took the time to get to know the culture he wanted to engage. And then he just started showing up where he saw needs and opportunities just like many of you do every day. So we think about what, where are the greatest needs in our community? When you look around as you drive, as you work, as you shop, what is it that provokes your spirit to action? Some of you may have that answer ready right this moment because the Lord has already stirred in you a passion maybe to, to partner, to work in our schools or to minister to the homeless or to preach Jesus to those who are battling addiction, or maybe just to engage your coworkers where you work with the good news of Jesus. But if you don't have that answer, or even if you do this morning, I invite you to pray with me over this coming week. Lord, where do you want me to show up in your name? And then when he answers that prayer, let's be faithful and let's start showing up. Don't make it complicated. Preaching to myself here, but you don't need to know the next seven moves. Just call and volunteer at school or with clarity or with warm blessings or with one of the ministries here at church. Get to know people, build relationships, talk about Jesus, watch and listen for where God is leading you in your life. Engaging the culture begins with faithful presence. But it doesn't stop there. We read as Paul's story in Athens continues in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
as even some of you, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Engaging the culture means faithful presence. Second, though, we see engaging the culture means seeing people, not problems. Look, let's just be honest this morning. Hopefully that's what we're doing here every Sunday morning. But let's be real. We are discipled by the prevailing culture of our day to view those whose beliefs differ from ours on any point, not as people created in the image of God, but as a problem to be solved or to be defeated. Maybe not physically, but at least verbally. And I hear the argument. It's just rhetoric. It's just words. But Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount make it clear that hateful words are indicative of a heart that is first filled with contempt. Facebook, Twitter, cable news, you name it, the goal is just to win points with those who already agree with us and put down those who don't. But those aren't goals that are worthy of the gospel. When we go down that road as disciples of Jesus, we aren't pointing people to Jesus as the answer, but to ourselves. And when we go down that road, we aren't engaging the culture with the gospel. We're undermining and clouding the message we claim to believe. We're just building up these echo chambers and keeping people at arm's length who might see things different from us because we see them as problems that need to be solved instead of people created in the image of God. A problem can be someone else's, right? Not my problem. So that we retreat from the world or maybe we go after, go on the attack against those who are different from us. But people who bear the image of God and the dignity of that identity aren't so easily dismissed or ignored. Engaging the culture means seeing people, not problems. And Paul shows us how to do that. He was more interested in persuading people than in winning the point. He found himself in Athens in the midst of this people who didn't believe anything that he believed. Some of them who viewed him as a babbler. He knew he wasn't talking to people who worshiped his God, but he didn't avoid that issue. He didn't deny that there was a disagreement. He didn't retreat. But on the other hand, he didn't pick a fight either. He didn't lash out. He didn't try to destroy or defeat his audience at any cost, whether to them or to his own soul, he engaged with real people, with real experiences, with calm conviction. He just started talking to the men of Athens. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This isn't Paul coming in hot, burning bridges, and it isn't Paul watering down the gospel message either, which he could have done. I mean, just think about the influence of those that were gathered before him at the Areopagus. I mean, if Paul could have gotten in good with them, then it would have been worth it. Maybe even if he had to compromise a little bit to be accepted, right? Maybe. No. Paul saw people, not problems. People, not philosophies. People, not power. And so he spent his time in waiting, getting to know the people and their experiences so that he could draw on something that was familiar to them as a bridge to the good news about Jesus. And so when we think about engaging the culture... We know we tend toward one of two extremes. On the one side, we're tempted just to withdraw completely, neither acknowledging or really engaging with other people in what they believe, 
And why they believe it? Because we see the culture as a danger to be avoided or as a threat to what we believe. Paul's willingness to understand and acknowledge the worship of the Athenians, though, shows us that wasn't the path he took. On the other extreme, although for the same reason, we're tempted sometimes to react to the culture with hostility and aggression, slamming and denigrating other people and what they believe. But Paul doesn't seem to view the Athenians as a threat to what he believed either. As we prepared together this week, Jonas pointed out rightly so, I think, that it's almost as if Paul here in Athens believed what he would write to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where he would say, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Seeing people, not problems, leads us to engage the culture with faithful presence and what Russell Moore calls convictional kindness. In his book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, he writes these words, when we don't oppose demons, we demonize opponents. And without a clear vision of the concrete forces we as the church are supposed to be aligned against, we find it very difficult to differentiate between enemy combatants and their hostages. Engaging the culture means seeing people not problems. It means understanding who we are in Christ and as ambassadors of God's kingdom, given a mission of not of retaliation, but one of reconciliation. And by reconciling us to God, Jesus has shown us that you don't do the work of reconciliation from a distance. And you don't do it by compromising the truth either. You do it with conviction and kindness. And those things are only possible with a settled confidence in the finished work of Jesus. When you're operating out of that hope of what Jesus has done for us, then you can love others like Christ has loved you, and you can speak the truth about who Jesus is and who he calls us to be. Engaging the culture means faithful presence, means seeing people, not problems. And third, it means proclaiming the gospel clearly. As we already saw to some extent, Paul didn't water down his message He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That was what got him invited to speak before the Areopagus in the first place. For us, this can be the point, though, where our cultural engagement kind of turns to cultural agreement, at least a silent agreement, because we show up, we love and understand people, but then we don't speak up to proclaim the good news of Jesus clearly. And our reasons for that can vary. We can be afraid of the response. We are afraid maybe we don't know what to say. But Paul shows us what to say here, beginning in verse 24. He got to know the people, who, what they were searching for. He got to know that they were searching for religious and spiritual truth. And then he said, I have the piece of the puzzle that you are missing. And what comes next is the gospel, clearly proclaimed, which we could outline here and as we share with others in four simple points that might be easy for us to rem- remember. That is God, man, Christ, response. See, the gospel begins where Paul begins and where all things begin, and that is with God, with who he is. He's the creator of all things. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He existed before anything else, and he exists apart from anything else, fully self-sufficient. He doesn't need us to build him a place to live. He doesn't need us to feed him or give him breath. God is the one who's sovereign over all things, including us. And that brings us to verse 25. It tells us God is the one who gives life and breath to all mankind. 
He made all of us from one man. He determines when we're born and where we live, creating us to seek and to know the God who made us. Again here, Paul appeals to the words of their own poets. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. He's saying, you know this to be true. You've even got it in your own writings and what you believe because God has written it on your hearts. Paul's pointing them to human dignity as those who are made in God's image. But then he also points us to the reality of sin. That we as mankind, we don't see God or ourselves rightly because of sin's presence in the world. We're tempted to make God in our image instead of realizing that it's the other way around. Which brings him to who Christ is. Just as God created all mankind from one man, so also he will judge the world in righteousness by one man. The one whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. He died for our sins and then was raised so that we can have assurance in the face of judgment. And then he calls us, invites us to respond. God has been patient, but now he's calling us to repentance. Paul would tell them there to turn from their sin and to think and to see things rightly, to recognize God's sovereignty and our limitations, his righteousness and our sinfulness, his sufficiency for our every need. If you've been with us a while here at Valley Creek, then you know this sounds a lot like another method that we've learned to use in sharing our faith, and that is one called the three circles. If you're not familiar with it, then we'll review it briefly this morning, but we'll also share maybe a video of it on our social media this week so that you can kind of dive into it more in depth. But this is a good way to share our faith as we think about, I don't know what to say, or maybe I don't feel like I've got all the answers But this is something you can draw on a receipt or a napkin or a piece of paper wherever you are, wherever God gives you an opportunity to share your faith with someone else, that you can point to God's design and creation, his good and perfect design for all of creation and for us. But talk about how sin has taken us away from that design and led to our brokenness and the brokenness that we see in the world around us. But that when we repent and believe In the good news of Jesus Christ, when we receive the gospel that Jesus died in our place and was raised again, we can recover and pursue God's design for us, and we can experience the redemption that God wants to bring in our lives. Engaging the culture as disciples of Jesus means we proclaim the gospel clearly. But like most things we do that are important to us, we don't get good at it without practice. Right, I went golfing on Friday for the first time in, I think, two years. Went with my brother and my dad, and it was a complete disaster. It's not something you get good at without practice. Playing an instrument, right, learning a language, anything we want to learn that we want to get good at doesn't usually come without practice. And sharing our faith is no different. We're not going to be maybe have all the answers that we wish we had the first time, but we need to just get out and do it. As we saw in the video earlier, there comes a point just to go and to do what God has called us to do. Trusting that he is able to equip us and provide for us, that he's provided means for us to to do that. And so that's part of what our D groups are about, our life groups are about, places where we can come together in community. And the gospel of Jesus Christ It becomes more than just the content of our faith and what we say we believe, but it becomes the fabric of our lives. And over time, on the journey of discipleship, as the gospel comes into greater focus in your life, we're able to share it more clearly with others. Engaging the culture 
means faithful presence, means seeing people, not problems, proclaiming the gospel clearly. And finally, it means trusting God to give the growth. Trusting God to give the growth. The reality is that as I say, God calls us to proclaim the gospel clearly. Many of you are saying in your mind or in your heart, I can't do that. I don't know enough, right? I'll mess it up. I'll say the wrong thing. I'll embarrass myself. I'll embarrass Jesus. I'll embarrass the church. I know because I said those things and because there are still moments when I say those things, moments when I need to pray what the father of the boy with the unclean spirit prayed in Mark 9, 24, where he said, I believe, help my unbelief. We know that it is God who saves, that he does it according to his will and his power and his word, not the eloquence of our words or the power of our arguments, but still our fear can be paralyzing and maybe a lack of response can be discouraging. Maybe we're tempted to say something like, well, yeah, if I was the Apostle Paul and had all of his accomplishments and his knowledge and his training, then of course I would share the gospel clearly and boldly. Well, let's look at how this chapter ends this time in Athens in verse, beginning in verse 32. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul's proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus led to at least three different reactions. First one, some mocked. If they listened, they understood, and they rejected what they heard. So some people mocked, even when Paul was the one sharing the gospel with them. But second, there were some who we see were intrigued. They said, we're going to hear more about this. Will you tell us more? We often use the analogy of planting seeds to say that the truth was shared, even if someone didn't fully receive it just yet, even if it didn't take root in their life and bear the fruit of faith. Right? Some will be intrigued as we go and share. Or maybe we'll plant a seed in a way that we don't know until years later, or maybe that we won't know until eternity. But then the third response, we see some joined him and believed. One message he preached with three very different responses. So we look at that this morning. I just want to ask you a question. Which of these responses indicate a failure on the part of Paul? Or maybe the reverse of that question is, which of these responses indicate success for Paul? 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul would write, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so which response from the Athenians indicated Paul's failure? None of them. Which response indicated Paul's success? All of them. Because Paul understood what the Lord wants to teach us this morning, that he is the one who saves. And that doesn't make our part in evangelism insignificant. It's actually just the opposite. Because when we share the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, God is at work in that. He's at work in that giving people eyes to see, giving people ears to hear what he is doing in the world. He is at work doing the saving. Romans 10, though, makes it clear that no one believes without someone preaching. While at the same time, this passage in Acts 17 shows us that not everyone who hears will believe, at least not 
the first time. And so for us to faithfully endure in the face of the different responses that we receive, we need to understand where our work ends and where God's work keeps on going. We cannot see what's going on in someone's heart as we share the gospel, but God can. And we can ultimately change someone's heart, but God can. And those of us gathered in this place in faith this morning are a testimony that not only can God change hearts and save souls, but he has. And so this morning, as we move to a time of response, the first question of two that we want to ask together this morning is first, what is your response to the resurrection of Jesus? In this passage, we see some mocked, some wanted to hear more though. If that's you this morning, then we would love to talk with you again about who Jesus is and what he has done. You can come as we sing in a moment. I'll be here to talk with you, or you can find someone else around you to talk to, maybe that you came with this morning. If you're joining us online this morning, you'll see ways that you can text us, call us, or email us. We'll always take time to talk more with you about who Jesus is. Or this morning, maybe you would say, I'm ready. I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus and follow him with my life. As we heard testimony from Kerrigan earlier, you would say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to live for him. You can do that right where you are this morning, believing in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and then by confessing that Jesus is Lord. And you can make that confession publicly as we sing in a moment, or again, talk to me afterwards, and we can talk about what that looks like for you to confess and to follow Jesus publicly in baptism and to trust him with your life. And so the first question, though, for each of us this morning is, what is our response to what Jesus has done for us? And then the second question this morning is for those who have placed your faith in Jesus already, and that is how or where are you engaging the culture? In this time of transition or more broadly in the Christian life, are you engaging with the culture or are you retreating from the culture? Are you a faithful presence in your home, at your work, in the community to embody the grace and glory of Jesus? How can you make space in your life, if you need to, to build relationships with people who don't know Christ? Are you committed to doing that, to seeing people as men and women created in the image of God, not as obstacles to getting our own way? Are you looking for opportunities to proclaim the gospel clearly and taking those opportunities? Because we trust that God will give the growth if we are faithful to show up and to share with the people that he places in our path. This morning, two questions. What's our response to Jesus? And then how are we engaging the culture to point others to Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come before you, we come confessing that as as Paul spoke before the people there in Athens, Lord, you are a God who is the creator of all things. You are the one who has given us life and breath the one who created us, Lord, that you are not created in our image, Lord, but that we are created in yours. And that though we've sinned against you and fallen short of your glory, Lord, you have come in Jesus to to reconcile us to yourself. And so, God, we pray this morning that maybe for the first time that someone would hear that message and would place their faith in Jesus and make a decision to follow him or to say like many did in Athens that day when Paul preached, I want to know more about this Jesus you're talking about. 
God, for those of us who have already placed our faith in you this morning, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to the calling you've placed on our lives. Lord, we we trust what your word says here in Acts 17, that you are the one who determines where we are and when we're there. God, that you are the one who has placed us in this place this morning for a purpose and that you are the one who has placed us in this community at this time for this season, God, because you have a plan and a purpose and a mission for us to walk in as a church and as individuals following after you, God. And so we pray that you would help us to, to be a faithful presence for you. Lord, to be people who embody your grace and your love, Lord, who, who draw near to those who are, are broken and hurting and lost to proclaim clearly the hope that we've found in Jesus and to trust every step of the way, Lord, that you are able to give the growth and that you will work powerfully through your people who faithfully answer your call. God, we pray this morning that you would help us now respond faithfully as you call us and as you lead us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.